Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is the recipient of a grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. When someone close to us dies, having a reminder of them that you can see every day and keep close to you can be a great comfort. So it's no surprise I'm drawn to Lori Mason's memorial quilts. Each piece that she creates is thoughtfully designed with the deceased loved one in mind. She gets to know about them and transforms garments like their favorite Hawaiian shirts, their judges' robes, uniforms, and other personal fabrics into a piece of art that reflects their lives. Head over to lauriemasondesign.com and check out examples of how she honors each individual's unique life with her art. Her process is well-documented and will give you a sense of the curiosity and intention that she brings to each quilt project. It's a wonderful gift we can give ourselves, snuggling under a quilt that's an artful remembrance and celebration of those we love. Head over to lauriemasondesign.com or to our show notes to learn more. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores the different ways we grieve, the gratitude that allows us to persevere, and the greatness we discover along the way, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. When we look at history, we see Western culture's invasive influence spreading around the world replacing local beliefs and customs. Dr. Eja Boatje-Boaten grew up in a village in Ghana where he was educated in a Methodist all-boys school beginning at the age of 10. Upon coming to the U.S., he found that many of the things he'd been taught were problematic and required dismantling. As the daughter of immigrants myself, I've seen the struggles my own family members experienced trying to preserve their identities while assimilating to Western culture. Like a school child who tries to fit in for fear of not being accepted, this is the story of so many immigrants to this country. I learned a lot about the world from my educational experience. What I came to know after my education was that I was being trained to understand the world through very Eurocentric prison. I came to the United States to go to graduate school, and my first graduate education was in African studies. When I tell people I'm coming to the United States to study Africa, it's like, what are you talking about? It was very interesting because the Africa that I knew was an Africa that I understood it from. Eurocentric paradigm. And then I came to the United States and I figured out there were a lot more Africans in the world, just the Africans on the African continent. I had not been exposed to this Pan-African consciousness. Coming to study Africa from the United States gave me a whole new perspective in relation to the structures that had formed the modern world, which is Eurocentric structures. It's always important that when you get out of your bubble, you get to learn more about yourself. 
In that space, I have come to understand the complex nature of the African in his or her relationship with the global world, how Africans are viewed, what it means to be African. It has also informed my idea about my own relationship with the Eurocentric structures. That was the avenue for my formative years. So now I've embarked on an epistemic journey of deconstruction. I'm deconstructing my Africanness to confront the distortions that has characterized my being. I have come to learn about the systemic dehumanization of the African, where as an African, you really need to deny you in order to be human. I am deconstructing that and becoming my African self, which is the authentic self, in opposition to the distortions that I've been used to. How I see myself in relation to other immigrants here. My education, my profession has allowed me to have a very dynamic intellectual inquest into who I am and how I want to present myself, that I am no longer an apologetic African. I am unapologetic African, and I am very right. I'm very happy to be who I am. I feel like I don't want to wear European clothes anymore. The mask is off. The mask is off. I think it could be said that the Eurocentric perspective is also the American perspective. Yes. You found this misalignment. At what point did you see the conflict between your being a Sante and the Christian parochial school upbringing mm-hmm. you were getting? My being itself tends to be slightly complex than most other folks. Because here I am, I'm growing up in a parochial school. At the same time, my dad is a chief in my town. I am having this hybridity of cultures. Like I go to my dad's very strong Asante cultural systems. And then I come to the boarding school. And it's set up that when you look at your cultural traditional systems, they are viewed as decadent. The tradition was viewed as old. It was not modern. Your school presents you with a modern, Eurocentric, Christian-centric outlook. The Bible, Christianity, when I was growing up, was all framed as a white man's culture. We have a saying that if you see a white man, you literally are seeing God. You have that imagery in your head. When you go to church, the pictures of God is white. This is part of the colonial legacy of diminishing the humanity of blackness and accentuating the humanity of whiteness. And so that literally white man has become God. There is this binary, this Manichaean system. You know, you African, you bad. You European, you good. You Christian, you good. The opposite is always bad. When you come to the United States, America is not different from the Eurocentric, Christian-centric, male-centric domination. America is a reflection of modern European construct. But this place is where you begin to see the tension between the good and the bad. You come here 
Because in Ghana, in most African places, it's only majority Black folk who are practicing European sensibilities. You come to the United States, you see the Black folk here, you see the Latina folk here, you see different shades of folk here, all trying to figure out how their humanities could be recognized. But you still see the pervasiveness of the strength of Eurocentric ideals. Now I can understand because the other me, I can see my reflection in how I've been otherized. It's so apparent to me. And that's when you begin to learn, oh yes, my blackness is as a result of whiteness. I am beginning to make the connections. In Africa, you were still thought to believe in the supremacy of Eurocentric ideals and canons. In the United States, you begin to see the fallacies of this Eurocentric supremacy. If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three. I began to deconstruct that very toxic formation of who I thought I was. Because here is my dad. He's a chief. He's also a professor. So he himself embodies this duality. I think he tried to rationalize this in many ways. Chieftaincy itself, it's a very old man-made institution before Christianity. And yet, here is my dad who is a professor in the university, and he embodies that. And then I go to church every Sunday, and I'm told that I cannot worship any other deity or cannot even recognize the power of the supremacy of God. In the same breath, God is shown to me as very favorably white. The goodness of the world is intertwined with the goodness of Eurocentrism. Education was brought to the African by the Europeans. There was this idea that Europe came to enlighten us and enlighten you from what? Enlighten you from your darkness, and your darkness is your culture. So if you want to be part of this modern world, you have to leave your culture behind. You don't have a name like Ijah. You need to have a name like Johnson. You need to have a name like John. Your whole upbringing is a massive mosaic of confusion. Now you want to believe that, actually, you know what? I think I really like the European kind because it feels clean. It feels unconfusing. It has a much clearer path. At least that's what we believe. When I go to my town and visit my villages, oh, wow, these folks are so removed from modernity. When I think about modernity, I think about Rome. I think about London. I think about the metropolis. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm learning English. I'm reading Macbeth so that when I meet my colonizer, I can relate. I can speak the language. 
I can wear the clothing. I can eat with beautiful cutlery set up. And I don't want to eat with my hands. I don't want a traditional style. Tradition is bad. European modernity is good. Oh, what a world. With this embrace of the modern world is this loss of your spirituality. And I'm not talking about Christianity. I'm talking about your African cultural spirituality. European religiosity does not have room for African spiritual expressions. The African is a complex web of the human, the physical, and the spirit. There is no way the African is a simple manifestation of the physical world. The African person represents the physical being and the spiritual being. We have this, what we call the susum. The susum is your spirit. And that spirit is not regulated by some religious institution. That spirit is in alignment with the creator, the creator of heaven and earth. And that if you want to be whole, then your physical and your spiritual being would have to align because you ignore your spirit and body. Because I think that European religiosity is antagonistic to African spirituality. By the African embracing this European institutionalized religiosity, he is already misaligned. He's gone. He's completely alienated from the self. So for us, sickness is a relationship between the physical and the spiritual. If you are sick, it's not only a physical manifestation, but also a spiritual discontentment. Where I'm sitting now, and I'm not sitting here by myself, there are spirits around here with me. And these spirits are both good and those that can harm you. This is how it manifests. What I do is not only to do something and then go to church on Sunday and ask for forgiveness. When I do something to you, I am afflicting you both from the physical and then from the spiritual. If you were to physically harm me, you mean? Even if I'm harboring negative thoughts about you. So it's not only simply physical, but I can also inflict mental, spiritual harm on you. For the African, both are very important because for the physical manifestation, we have laws that deals with how we relate to each other. In the spiritual world, we have the same. Consciously, I have to be whole by not extending evil. When I go to somebody's land, I cannot go where they have buried their ancestors. I cannot go with a bulldozer, scrape the land, and build my house on it. It's not possible because for me, my existence is intertwined with the living, the dead, and yet to be born. So I protect them all. If you leave here, you're not gone. You're going to another village. That's why I revere you. That's why I call on you. I was talking to a student. He said, I lost my cousin, a 17-year-old cousin. I said, you know what? He may be dead, but he is not gone. I want you to talk to him. I want you to write him a letter. Because you know what? He's listening to you. He's here. We're sitting outside. I said, you can see me and you, but your cousin is here. 
Don't let him tell you that he's gone dead and buried because he's gone to another world and he's here. You just brought back these memories of my childhood that I had completely forgotten about. I come from an immigrant family on both sides. When I was really little, when I wasn't being good, I got threatened with this spirit would come after me if I wasn't good. They used to spit on me. Not really spit on me, not with saliva, Mm -hmm. but they used to do this thing with their lips where they were making you undesirable to the bad spirits by Ah. spitting on you. I think a lot of cultures have been far more in tune with something that our dominant culture has sort of washed out. That's what I keep telling folks. Eurocentric ideals is so fundamentalist that it doesn't give room to some of these expressions that doesn't make sense. Thank you for listening in to this episode of Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness. We appreciate you following the work we do and would love it if you'd share us with your friends and family. Your recommendation helps us reach more ears and build upon the work we're doing. So many are assimilating to the dominant culture. And it happens with little things like mispronunciation of the name. And I think, for example, the real pronunciation of my last name is mm-hmm. Shaul. But my father and his brother, when they came here, they just made it Shaul, just to make it easy for people to say. It's crazy that people give up something so important, like their name and how it's pronounced, just to make it easy for the dominant culture. And I think that happens so much every day with everyone who comes here. Yes. Most of my students call me Dr. B. It's much easier than what you bought in. When I want to splurge and go to Starbucks, they ask your name and I say, AJ. There is an internalized, almost intentional concealment of you in order to belong. You do not want to accentuate your otherness by concealing the real you, you inhibit the space that becomes relatable, that becomes less threatening, that becomes more accepting. That's the struggles, the conflict that an immigrant would have to go through in order to reimagine your humanity. Because whatever you brought here is very different. You literally have to go through the process of concealment. You change your name. You change how you look. You actually change how you speak so that you start to belong. It's not so conscious, is it? For some, maybe. I've seen it within my own family. I think it can be a very gradual thing. It's almost a deliberate act. There might be some others that unconsciously are in a full swing assimilation mode. There are two faces to this. There are those who see it and try really hard to conceal it. And there are some who have already internalized a space of assimilation that they don't even recognize it. Du Bois talks about this dual consciousness happens either you are conscious about it and concealing it, or you have so much internalized this concealment that you don't even practically feel this urge to deliberately do it. It comes natural to you. But I can tell you that 
every immigrant at the point in time gets to the space, I'm too tired of concealing. It might be my kids who will say, okay, love pops, I can no longer do this. I want my real name. So it comes that you could get to a point where you recognize it and try to fight it, or you will never recognize it because, in fact, the mask that you wear is so good to you that you don't want to remove that mask. The mask is so good to you that you don't want to remove it. They give you a space. Why would you want to destroy it? Literally, in the United States, the color of your skin would get you into some spaces. So why wouldn't you want to enjoy that? Changing your name may mean something else. That's good. So you're a professor that focuses on racial justice. We are in this country where so many people are trying to assimilate, to enjoy that American dream. How does that get in the way of the need to acknowledge the trauma of pursuit of racial justice? When we say we the people, it means something. When those words were inscribed, there were people in this country, at least one-fifth of the population of the country at the time, were not considered to be humans. They were considered to be subhuman. What has transpired over the years is that these folks who were not part of the humanity that created the society, how do you expand the concept of the we? We would have to acknowledge a very dark past of the United States. Nobody wants to go there. The idea is that it happened a long time ago, so move on. Because if you have to go there, you have to reassess the soul of this country to acknowledge that dark past. By acknowledging that dark past, we place the idea of the we, the people, into a very non-American spotlight. This is the country of freedom. We do not want to muddy the historical legacy of this country because then it would mean that we have to think about what did we do? The only way we can acknowledge that is that we have to give space for those who have had immense atrocities against them, the space to mourn which also means that there's an acknowledgement that we have inflicted pain. For those whose humanity has been stripped, there is no space for a recollective rebuilding of this because there's no way I can heal without truth. That's not even the conversation on the table now. It seems like the conversation on the table right now is defunding the police. This is also interesting. The conversation now is, again, how white people are defining the struggle for black folk. So we want to defund the police. Yes, we do. Just it's okay. We can defund the police. But they are immediate structural dangers for black folk that they want to talk about. The protection of black bodies now. There is so much here that is being deferred to very superficial demands. We want to do all these big things. I'm saying now, black kids are failing in schools. Black kids are disproportionately affected by health outcomes. They are immediate pressing needs. And that's not the conversation we have. We are drawing roadmaps. The roadmaps are important. But white America, 
co-conspirators need to listen to the pain of Black people. And this moment is the greatest opportunity I've seen in my lifetime for that to happen. How are you seeing that possible in this moment? Or what more do you think needs to happen? I'm excited about the optimism that is cutting across very vocal, young, and vibrant cross-section of society. And I think that it is important that if there's going to be any seismic changes and shifts in the society, there ought to be that coalition building. But now we can solve the police issue in the next two years. But we need to figure out right now, how do we protect Black children from violence in the society? How do we protect women, Black women? How do we protect Black trans now? Because they are in danger now. So I want a dual track. One looking at the future and one looking at now. There is something there that we can no longer deny. There has been so much trauma in many indigenous communities that this trauma is real. We can overcome this by recognizing it and being gracious to allow a space for accounting of the grief that many people have suffered, continue to suffer. If we can recognize the humanity of those who are struggling, I think we'll be having much better outcomes of our activism. There needs to be an accounting and a deep introspective realization of the systemic dehumanization of Black bodies that if we do not recognize that, and try to reconcile our own humanity, then we'll be having these conversations forever. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness was created by me, Sarah Shaul, and is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn with music by Samantha Jensen. Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Word of mouth helps us find new listeners, so please leave us a review and let your friends know about us. More information about this episode and how to contact us can be found in our show notes and at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You'll also find links to follow us on Instagram, Patreon, and Facebook. Join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.